0: Out of Austin, Texas, you're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean.
1: Good afternoon. We've managed to survive the Austin freeze-over this week. Very inclement weather, but today it is beautiful and sunny outside in Austin, Texas. It's... Uh, It really doesn't please me I've been watching the um, truthtalk.uk thread um, which we are contributors to proud contributors to truthtalk.uk and uh, unluckily I've found that there there are people dumpster diving in the name of owning nothing and being happy Uh, it just appears here that this is this is really a not a very good scene so, you know, people... It looks like looks like a scene from, you know, parts of India where they're like, oh, well, you know, you're in the lower caste, you can you can just take our garbage. But there it is, right outside of an ATB barbecue truck. Wow! Crazy! Um, anyhow, uh, that's the Truth Talk UK thread. If you go there on, um... On Twitter. Proud of Twitter these days because they've really helped us clean up our act nationally. And they've been a source of contemporary information that is available on not very many conventional media networks. I'll just say it. You know, I wouldn't call it a media blackout, but there is kind of a a burnout on conventional media. And I think that there is an explanation, and the explanation that I've gotten that seems to check out. Is that uh, that how do I say this uh, that, that, that conventional media companies have become like social media companies and online corporations and because they've become like online corporations um, they have turned into more or less uh, You know people who serve the man and the man being the corporate grants that are granted by the government to perform functions like surveillance and surveillance for pay and information uh, laundering and psyops for pay and so I just wanted to take this opportunity for here and now and future listeners um, to feature this this um, this hour-long lecture from one Mike Benz, and Mike Benz is an expert in domestic psychological operations. He's, he's very aware of the grant environment around, you know, pay for spying on American people. And and this is what's out there. Uh, during COVID, there was an overappropriation for a lot of things. It was rocketed through the Congress. Nobody read it, and in there, were it was just stuffed with packages for social media surveillance of the American people for what they could and could not say. Now, was this designed by anybody um, Anybody in, a, in conventional America? Not really. These were put together by people who were kind of waiting in the wings predatorially, going, okay, if this situation happens, then this. And they had, you know, it was a design. There was a de- design that said, okay, in the event of a, a national emergency, and that's all it had to, to do was be a national emergency, because a different governance frame clicks into place, uh, your conventional representative government clicks out of place, and then what clicks into place is dark government. The dark government assumes power and the administrative state starts running things in a completely uh, dictatorial, undemocratic fashion where things happen that override the conventional means. They don't observe uh, your conventions of rights and freedoms and human rights. They just don't. Okay, And the people who assume control during a national emergency are FEMA. The three-letter law enforcement actors and then of course you know the DNI they got to watch everybody and control all the communications like it's a war or something but it doesn't have to be a war if it's a national emergency but they run things just as autocratically as if it were a war and all that has to be in place is a national emergency so it is greatly comforting that uh, the actors in Washington kind of said, okay, well, we're going to take the dictat crown off, and we're going to go back to allowing the democracy that is uh, the United States of America to, to click back into the conventional place, and, and we're going to abolish this national emergency by May 11th. You know, it could happen sooner, but you know, at least there's a deadline on it. I guess they pushed it back a couple of times just to keep the grant funding rolling in for these cockroaches uh, so and and you know there's a reason why I'm calling them that they hide in the darkness and they hide everything they do they're nameless they're faceless and they think that you cannot see them or find them so um I without further ado I want to to bring to the fore one Mike Benz okay and uh, this this is this is the stuff this is it um one more thing before we get to going uh, for for now and future listeners uh, this let me see here Kim.com featured I think it was a yeah yeah Project Veritas and, and they've I've become a great big fan of Project Veritas in the last I don't know month and a half because they have just done stunningly amazing work so Project Veritas produced a video um, really kind of hammering the facts down about the fact that DARPA technology was used. DARPA AI developed to choke communications uh, for ISIS during wartimes in Afghanistan, was dispatched according to these grant holders. To choke the communications of the American people during this national emergency based on recommendations of the National Science Foundation now this interview with Mike Benz is actually just a further corroboration corroborated reporting from Epoch Times that basically says the same thing and it piggybacks on further things that we've made claims that we have stated here on on the unsanctioned citizen Um, to to say exactly those things Uh, so I'm just gonna run it and um, one of the reasons why I'm gonna run it live through the speaker system rather than say putting the file in is that something will happen with the file sometimes in this app and and I'm not saying that to be mean to 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 Colin Colin is is a mobile application and it's it's sensitive and uh, until things are adequately hardened for sound files, I mean, they've cleaned it up a lot, but um, I don't want any interruptions. This is a 46 minute um, lecture on, on the pre- precise architecture, the structural um, modalities of how your government paid the social media vendors As contractors in these HSIN grants and other grants to choke your legitimate free speech 100% constitutionally protected speech rights uh, because national emergency so I think without further ado we'll get into the fair practice afterwards and this church committee that's this, this. Come to Jesus. Get it together. Let's 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 scrub out uh, the wrongness of our deep state. And there obviously there is one. Cause if somebody is choking, using ISIS choke communication for more time. On, I don't like this vaccine. I don't want to take it. It's medicine I don't like. Cause Americans you know, the, the weights are really disparate, you know, like, and the people to offend are very thin-skinned, um, and they are at the top, and the only thing they really care about is obedience for, you know, so that they can get the money, the money, okay, and it's not even their money, it's the people's money, it's the taxpayer's money, so, I'm going to pause my mic, uh, set up the m- microphone, and get the...
2: misinformation for purposes of takedowns or throttling
3: through EIP with the Election Integrity Partnership. Mike Benz has been tracking the rise of the West's censorship industry for years as executive director of the Foundation for Freedom Online and a former State Department official. The Twitter files were just the tip of the iceberg, he says. To monitor social media
2: discourse about COVID,
3: Grafica was
2: immediately working with NATO's essentially psychological warfare branch
3: in January 2020. In this comprehensive two-part interview, he breaks down the major players in today's censorship regime and how tactics once used abroad were deployed to target Americans.
2: It is a career path. It is a path to power. People who are in government roles in misinformation disinformation at DHS will get their next jobs at the German Marshall Fund or at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab.
3: This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Mike Bence, it's such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me. Mike, in our conversations, you told me that you have a mission of fostering a free and open internet. Where are we at now? Because You're basically saying that this is not the case here. Well, we're very far removed from the, the days of
2: what I consider to be the golden age of between 2006 and 2016, when you had this combination of a mature social media ecosystem where people could share information, basically a pure information meritocracy, if you will, until after the political turbulence of the events of 2016, which instituted a sort of revenge of the gatekeepers, if you will, a sort of increasingly, incrementally more um, regimented system
3: of censorship that uh, we are now in the process of negotiating opposition to, if you will. You're saying that something profound happened in 2016 that changed the ecosystem dramatically. So obviously you said it was the political turbulence, but what actually happened? How did the system change? Well, there were two enormous and unexpected political events that year. In June 2016,
2: you had Brexit. Brexit at the time was not just a sort of small, isolated, domestic issue within the United Kingdom, it was viewed as an existential threat to the integrity of the European Union, because at the time there was a fear that France would then go through Frexit with Marine Le Pen's movement, Italy would go through exit with Matteo Salvini's movement. You would have Grexit in Greece, Spexit in Spain, the EU would come undone, NATO would fall apart the entire rules-based international order would collapse if something urgent was done about it. And then, in quick succession, you had, who at the time was a almost 20-to-1 underdog, in the New York Times, the morning of the 2016 election, had Trump at about 5%, Hillary Clinton, you know, 90x, and a little bit for the stragglers. But basically, it was this idea that this couldn't happen, and yet it did. Uh, and it seemed like everything was going to, to fall apart, so to speak, with the, the rules-based international order unless the information ecosystem was radically permanently altered because both of these events were viewed as being Internet elections, if you will. So they, social media was the reason that Nigel Farage uh, developed the popularity of the Brexit movement. It was through his viral YouTube speeches to the, um, the European Parliament. and it was the domination of Twitter hashtags and Facebook groups that were responsible for um, Donald Trump's popularity at the base level. So you had an organized effort to contain populism by containing the means through which populists could uh, distribute their messaging and mobilize
3: politically. Populist seems like a catch-all term, right? Is is it actually populist that we're talking about? That's their terminology, and I think that's fair to
2: use because it captures both the idea that base-level opposition to elite institutions can come from both the right and the left. It's not necessarily a right-wing or a left-wing thing. Left-wing populists like Bernie Sanders in the U.S. or Jeremy Corbyn in the U.K. were, um, were targeted with equal um, ferocity, if you will. It's just that they didn't come as close to power as Trump and the Brexit movement
3: did. Um. So why don't we just sketch out where we are today? Okay? You describe it as a whole-of-society effort, which is, just sounds massive and unbelievable, frankly. I mean, you're saying that a lot of people are beginning to understand what this is. They might know that well, the Twitter files have exposed a lot of censorship. They might have themselves experienced something, but they can necessarily they don't see the whole picture. Whole of society, what does that mean? Right. So that's actually the terminology of
2: basically every mainstream censorship industry professional.
1: Addressing disinformation requires a whole of society approach. This information is not going to be fixed uh, by governments acting alone. Uh, I think uh, we see that a whole society effort uh, is really key to the solution.
2: This is a whole society challenge.
1: Whole of society approach. This is a whole of society
2: problem. This is something that is is now such a well worn phrase within the censorship industry that they often apologize at conferences for using the term because it's so it's so well worn at this point. So what that means is four categories of institutions in society all working together towards the common goal of censorship. So you've got government the private sector, civil society, and then news media and fact checking. So just to break down those four elements, you've got DHS, FBI, DOD, the State Department, the National Science Foundation, the CIA and National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, on issue specific uh, uh, issues like COVID censorship, you've got HHS, NIH, CDC, NIAID, all of those playing various roles at the government level. Then you've got the private sector. You've got the tech platforms where the censorship actually occurs. That is, you know, where the button gets pressed, so to speak, or where the algorithms play out. But then you've also got private sector censorship technology development. That is, um, private companies whose job is to create machine learning, artificial intelligence, um, you know, to incorporate the the training data to actually create the tools that are used for the act of censorship. And then you've got the corporate social responsibility, the CSR money that pours into it from the private sector. In fact, there's a whole new impact investing angle, VCs investing in censorship companies because there's such a gold rush into this into the field. And then on the civil society side, you've got universities, NGOs, activists, and nonprofits and foundations. And then finally, at the news media and fact-checking level, you've got political like minded within the media who are propped up by government by the private sector, by the civil society, so that they can manage public narratives about um, about various issues and can amplify pressure for censorship by creating negative press on the tech companies, for example. And then you've got the fact-checking conglomerates within that who flag the individual posts for the tech companies to manage. So all four of those in concert have all been fused into
3: basically the nucleus of the single ad. I mean, it's hard to conceive how this When they have disinformation
2: conferences from all four institutions there, they will negotiate what their own preferences and needs are. They will talk with each other about doing favors for favors. They will work out common terminologies, common um, common, uh, problems that they're having. They uh, They will have a revolving door at the professional level. That is, people who are in government roles, for example, in misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation at DHS, will get their next jobs at the German Marshall Fund. We're at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, uh, uh, Stanford University's fellowship that It is a career path. It is a path to power. We're now going on, essentially, year five or six of this industry uh, being created, so it's reaching a stage of maturity as it would a technology space or an energy space. It's becoming much more seamless
3: as these roles become more interchangeable. What is it that unites these people? Is it ideology? I think different people are in it for different reasons. Um, What I find most fascinating is the young people, actually, because
2: uh, it's my contention that censorship, if you will, is the fastest growing major on college campuses. For ambitious young people who want jobs um, in Washington, D.C. or in Silicon Valley, um, often a top career path was you'd go to Georgetown, you major in international relations, uh, and you'd aspire to get a job on the hill and then work your way up and maybe or maybe you'd start in finance and then transition over. What's happened with the rise of the censorship industry, and basically they don't call you don't get your degree in censorship. You'll get it in something like computational data science or um, advanced linguistics or uh, the Internet Research Lab or the 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 media lab. The There's so many different ways to launder the concept, but essentially what they're doing day to day in in these majors and in these PhDs is they are fusing the social sciences with the computer sciences to help both Silicon Valley and big government control public discourse, control the political momentum of various ideas. And this puts young people right at the nexus of Google and Facebook and Washington, D.C., and Congress. So you can shortcut, uh, you know, making a a, a tiny salary uh, at at the Hill out of of Georgetown and then taking that pedigree into a long-term by going directly over to Google's content moderation team or public policy team and working directly with Congress there or working directly with essentially congressional cutouts. It is a path to power that is stunning in both the salaries these folks make and in how glitzy it is. I mean, you really do get the cocktail party invitations. You really do get access to a beautiful life. And you get impact. You're not a sort of desk jockey, if you will, who's correcting typos for the first five years of your career. You're in the action. So I think it's very exciting for people, and I think they become very intoxicated with the power, the godlike power, if you will, that that total censorship
3: capacity gives you. As I'm listening to you speak, I'm still having trouble imagining how this, you know, in 2016, suddenly this whole industry just kind of launches or is created, basically, you're saying, um, it's not out of nothing, right. Um, And now you're saying it's maturing at this time, and it happened without, frankly, most people being entirely aware, even though they were aware that there is more censorship that there is, you know, if you were targeted, of course, right. um, over the last few years, but you didn't ever imagine it would be something so grand as you're portraying your here. These things were not
2: on the front page of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You know, they, were, they were in sort of, you, you'd pick it up in, in, in strange vibrations, and for me, I came to it through the artificial intelligence sort of space, you know, the, I, um, I was an avid chess player as a kid. And I lived through that period when computers overtook humans in the capacity to play chess well. And I remember all the naysayers saying that chess computers would never be able to beat Gary Kasparov, or there will always be this ability to have a, you know, the purity of the human spirit pierce through the dead soul of a chess computer. And then I remember the existential dread that befell the the chess community when Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue, and it, it was like humans would never be able to compete against computers again, and it was this this negotiation existential with what we do in a world where you've got no hope. And I remember when I first, in late 2016, came across um, uh, literature around the deployment of artificial intelligence for purposes of content moderation. And it gripped me. I became fixated at at the cognitive level on the existential threat that this posed. And every time I would try to have conversations with folks uh, about it, both socially Politically, familiarly, um, uh, nobody took took the concern seriously, and laughed it off in a very similar way that people did in 1998, 1999, you know, be, you know before the Gary Kasparov match. And so, for me, none of what's happened has been a surprise to me. Uh, I only wish that folks had had uh, taken the issue much more seriously before the infrastructure became consolidated because now it's it's like trying to stop a cancer once it's already metastasized into the brain and the lungs. Um, it's much harder to do now. It's still essential and that's what I consider to be my purpose.
3: What is it that you saw exactly? What did you realize that no one else realized? Um, the power of control
2: over words uh, was very similar to the power of control over chess pieces, if you will. Um, the way chess computers work for algorithms is they condense everything into a number system, so that you can you can grade every aspect of of, of, a, of a chess position on a number scale to spit out a clean number that tells you who's winning by, and by how much. For example, if if the computer says the position is negative zero point five, it means that the computer assesses the the person who's playing the black pieces to be up by approximately half of a pawn. When I started looking into what was being done with artificial intelligence and natural language processing and machine learning training models that were were being developed, they were using a very similar system in order to map linguistically what was happening in the human language on social media. If someone was talking about, say, a Trump policy, you could map the linguistic topography of that narrative. And you could grade all of the different words and slogans and memes and concepts into essentially what looked like a chess computer readout for whether you want to play knight to F3 or bishop to C5. And the, the power this gives you to be able to automatically trip varying levels of interventions, is what they call it, you know, censorship things. If the threshold goes above 1.5, this thing just gets banned. If it's between 1 and 1.5, we're going to shadow ban it. If it's between 0.5 and 1, we're going to just affix a fact-checking thing to it. It gives you perfect control over the ability to determine the, the popularity of a narrative.
3: So let, let me talk about the Twitter files, okay? We've known about censorship for a while. You know, we've been at the Epoch Times, we've uh, e- experienced, um, you know, sort of hit pieces and deplatforming platforming or demonetization associated with such hit pieces and this kind of you know some of what you're what we've been talking about here here we're, we're kind of aware of what the, what the Twitter files revealed to me was that while there's on one side there's censorship happening the thing that really hit me at one point as we were looking at these dumps is that there's this essentially ability that comes out of this to save the to shape the perception of a whole significant portion of society by just excluding discourse. This is what you're making me think of right now as you describe this in chess analogy. Um, so, but you say that the Twitter files are just kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? A very tiny tip of it. Um, the fact
2: is, is um, my foundation, the Foundation for Freedom Online, had already. Covered a lot of the things that ended up coming out in the Twitter files. A lot of this was available, you know, f- uh, frankly, just by listening to the, the folks involved own public meetings. And a lot of these things were done on YouTube or on, in, you know, or, or were added as Facebook videos or were on their own websites. Um, you know, what the Twitter files revealed was basically the presence of censorship operatives at virtually every national security-related institution in the U.S. government, uh, as well as in the intelligence and, um, and in, in the public health spheres. So, you know, there were Twitter files for the FBI, for the DHS, for, for the DOD, for um, for the State Department. Um, I saw that at the State Department myself, everything from funding censorship-themed video games to promoting censorship of populist groups around the world, often with a conscious view of it having a boomerang effect on limiting the popularity of populist groups in the US. What the Twitter files tended to focus on, even in their most explosive um, uh, cases, were one-off requests for censorship takedowns. For example, the FBI would send a message to um, you know the the Twitter Trust and Safety team to say here's a batch of six or seven tweets that, that we we don't like. And we want you to take we, you know um, they violate your your terms of service, so you may want to take them down, sort of thing. That only captures the tiniest fraction of censorship that was actually done in each of the major geopolitical events that we've experienced in the past few years. So. Take six or seven takedowns in the context of, say, something like the Election Integrity Partnership, which had a formal partnership with the Department of Homeland Security to operate as their formally designated disinformation flagger. Twenty-two million tweets uh, were categorized as misinformation for purposes of takedowns or or throttling um, through EIP. Compare that to, you know, six or seven highlighted in a Twitter files dump, and these are Six, seven orders of magnitude—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's not even the same ballpark. And this is because it wasn't just government individual takedown requests; it was government pressure and coordination with the changing of the policies in the private sector themselves to actually coerce the tech companies to create whole new categories of things to censor, and then arming them with the artificial intelligence to to then automatically scan and ban the new. Thought violations that they themselves had helped install, so they so they did a one-two punch behind the scenes. That the Twitter files still have not even come close to touching.
3: How are you cataloging all this? Like where where are you where are you discovering all this? Like the, the evidence of this happened? Sure. So what we just covered um, was stated very frankly and directly
2: by uh, an individual named Alex Stamos who was the head of the Stanford internet observatory, which was sort of the anchor entity of the election integrity partnership.
0: My suggestion is if people want to get the the platforms to do stuff is first you've got to push for written policies that are specific and that give you predictability, right? And so this is something we started in the summer in August is as Kate talked about, Carly Miller led a team from, from all four institutions to look at the detailed policies of the big platforms and to measure them against situations that we expected to happen now we're not going to take credit for all the changes they made but there we had to update this thing like eight or nine times right and so like putting these people in a grid to say you're not handling this you're not handling this not handling this creates a lot of pressure inside the companies and forces them to kind of grapple with these issues because you want specific policies that you can hold them accountable for the second is when you report stuff to them report how it's violating those written policies right so there's two steps here get good policies and then say this is how it's violating it we will have our statistics right but i think we were pretty effective in getting them to act on things that they hadn't acted on it before.
2: November 9th, 2022 report has about 20 to 25 embedded videos of censorship professionals confessing what they did. Uh, and what I just cited here of, of how EIP, using DHS's clout and pressure on the back end, coerced the tech companies to create a new category of censorship called delegitimization which was anything in the 2020 election that delegitimized public faith or confidence in mail-in ballots, early voting drop boxes, uh, and were, were ballot tabulation issues on election day. 100% of their of their targets, 100% were Trump voters, right-wing populist groups. And it was the tech companies didn't want to do these policies initially, but th- that they were coerced through pressure from EIP and EIP's friends on in the legislature Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Mark Warner, Adam Schiff—this whole, you know, uh, intelligence committee, foreign affairs committee uh, uh, faction, uh, as well as through uh, others in the DNC to put pressure on the tech companies to create the censorship category. And then he 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 laid out in that video the two-step process, uh, which is one: you get them to change the policies by putting them in the grid and threatening this, and then creating negative news media that, and then two. You, you engage in this mass documentation and, and uh, you know, assist with the actual development of the capturing of all the violations of the new policies you just put them got them put in. Now the reason they do all these confessions on video is because you have to understand censorship is a it's not just an industry, it is a mercenary business. Everyone in the censorship industry is competing for the same pool of, of government grant funds and donor and donor dollars. And it is a competitive industry at this point. We're not in 2018, 2019 anymore. It is a mature industry with many players in it. You need to stand out. You need to prove what a good mercenary you are, what a good censor you are, how effective you are at silencing the opposition of the donors and the the grant organizations. So you need to brag about it on video so that you are more qualified than your opposition, than your competitors in getting more government grants. And in fact, right after Alex Damos made this confession, um, not just on video, but in a 292-page public report, uh, he got uh, he and, and the lab that he partnered with got a $3 million government grant from the Biden administration. It became government funded for the first time ever right
3: after he made that confession. <laughs> confession. So many things coming out of what you just said. But the first one is, so there's this is actually like a market for censorship competitive market for censorship Yes, you're talking about.
2: It is an industry, and it is a subsidized business by the federal government and by large entrenched commercial and political interests who all have varying investments in neutralizing opposition to their concerns, which can be done through censorship because social media is the great equalizer when it comes to creating social and political momentum.
3: So what's really interesting is what you're describing you know, you're talking about it in the context of election integrity. Um, use that term. It also applies directly when it comes to, you know, COVID misinformation. And it's, similar. So it's, it's, it's the exact same tools that are being used essentially in the same way. It's funny you say that, actually, because we just covered the Election Integrity Partnership,
2: EIP. It's the entity that, that DHS formerly partnered with as their disinformation flagger. When the 2020 election ended and they had already they censored their 22 million tweets and had 120 staffers censoring for dhs uh the uh, trump supporters for the 2020 election there was no more election cycle until 2022 they came back and partnered with dhs again for the midterms but in between then they they briefly folded up and then rebranded and renamed themselves as a new entity consisting of the same censorship entities but instead of calling themselves eip They called themselves VP, the Virality Project, where they did the exact same system of coordinating the government, the civil society, the private sector, and the news media, and fact-checking organizations. Instead of doing election censorship, they did COVID censorship. But they did the exact same ticketing system. They had the exact same relationships with Facebook, with Google, with YouTube, with Twitter, with TikTok, with Reddit, with the 15 different platforms they monitored, And they had the, the same system of chopping conceptual opposition to, you know, in the election context, it was mail-in ballots and drop boxes and ballot population, to COVID origins, uh, to uh, to vaccine efficacy, to mask mandates, or to you know, um, narratives about Bill Gates or Anthony Fauci. In fact, in their own after action report, they detailed how they micro-targeted 66 distinct narratives about COVID chopped all of them up into into all the different component claims, and then helped uh, basically advise on the artificial intelligence censorship, helped the uh, reporting and flagging, and and coordinated the censorship army that was trained on censoring COVID. So it was a seamless transition from election censorship to COVID censorship
3: so basically all you need to do to do this is to know what the correct view is this is what you're telling me and then you just you can just you know basically engage system engage and you're good, you're good to go it's an evolutionary process as well um,
2: so one of the things that was onboarded several years ago into the censorship industry was this concept of subject matter experts on a narrative by narrative basis who can help do the linguistic mapping and in monitoring the the rise of new means of, of new ways of talking about an issue and then continually uh, folding that into the censorship paradigm that you've, that you've established. Uh, I do wanna quickly say though that, that I, I, I highlighted EIP turning into VP for COVID censorship after the 2020 election, but COVID started at the end of 2019 and actually the COVID censorship uh, consortium began immediately really immediately. For example, Graphica is one of the four component entities of the EIP censorship consortium that DHS partnered with. Graphica is a U.S. Department of Defense funded censorship consortium essentially. They were initially funded uh, to help do uh, social media counterinsurgency work effectively uh, in conflict zones um, for the U.S. military. then they were redeployed domestically, essentially, both on COVID censorship and for for political censorship. But Graphica was was deployed to monitor social media discourse about COVID and COVID origins or COVID conspiracies or or COVID, you know, sort of uh, issues that were aroused. In January 2020, they began their their first formal, this is one, COVID-19 didn't even have the name COVID-19 in January It was still called coronavirus at the time, and yet Grafica was immediately working with NATO's uh, essentially psychological warfare branch, the the hybrid COE, hybrid center of excellence, in January 2020, and immediately they were doing social media network graphs of what right-wing social media, and they, they, they did this along political lines. They had they had this sophisticated topography of what right wing media was saying, what left wing media was saying, uh, what was being shared, the the nodes and links between nodes of all the different um, uh, you know narrative discourses on social media for the purpose of then handing that to the government to say here's what people are saying, what should we do to stop it? So the censorship set in right away.
3: You know, you're reminding me of something I read that I wanted you get to get you to comment on, which is the foreign to domestic disinformation switcheroo. It sounds like you're 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 touching on something about this. So what what, what is that? I think it's very important to this whole picture. This is so
2: important for understanding the, the, the history and chronology of how we got here. And it's something that many commentators to the Twitter files are Sort of discovering for the first time now. Matt Taibbi, uh, you know, has, has you know has spilled a lot of ink in the past several weeks talking about how shocking it is how the Russian disinformation predicate, uh, how central that was in retrospect. As, as he's as he's been writing um, to the normalization of domestic censorship. This is something I've been screaming about for five years now. Um, what happened was. Uh, it, Before 2016, the idea of domestic censorship in the U.S. was not just rare, isolated, and frowned upon. It was a sacred existential attack on everything American. Censorship was the one thing that really distinguished at the governmental and at the social contract level that distinguished the United States of America from every other country on the face of the planet. Other Western democracies, no other Western democracies, have a First Amendment. You know, we look at uh, sort of liberal democracies like Canada or the United Kingdom um, as being, you know, kind of just like America and being, you know, Western tradition, you know, uh, you know, governmental democracies. But what makes America distinct is that we have total free speech in this country. So at least that's what it was billed as. And the idea of going directly from that into this system of mass domestic censorship where if you challenge mail-in ballots in a Twitter post while you're sitting on the toilet on a Thursday night that that the Department of Homeland Security has an entire division who is sitting there who, who when they see your tweet will categorize you as conducting a cyber attack on US critical infrastructure because you've undermined public faith in the elections. This is something that needed an intermediary step. And that interme- intermediary step was the foreign predicate. Now, this is something that the U.S. foreign policy establishment has been doing, I want to say, since time immemorial, but essentially since the 1940s, if you will, um, with when, when the national security state was established, really consolidated with the 1947 National Security Act, and the American foreign policy establishment basically came to a consensus opinion that if we want the 20th century to be the American century, we're going to need a department of dirty tricks. We're going to need to play rougher um, on the world stage than than we've been used to. We will still have constitutional protections for Americans. We'll still have free speech in America. We'll still have, you know, uh, due process in America. But we're going to empower our foreign intelligence and our foreign influence capacities with much more ruthless and dirty capacities than we have to play at home because this it's a tough world out there, you know. The Bolsheviks are going to do it if we don't do it. You know, um, there's you know, there's this whole new order that coming out of World War II that is going to need you know some, some tough love to you know to consolidate. And even in the 1960s, at the time in the 1960s when there were opposition movements to the bipartisan consensus on 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 several things, including on war and foreign policy, the counterintelligence division at the FBI was often. Uh, often deployed this Department of Dirty Tricks to neutralize anti-war protesters or or, or some of the more um, stringent elements of the Civil Rights protest. Martin Luther King, for example, was targeted by the FBI uh, formally on the grounds that of uh, his connections to Stanley Levison, who was a you know had these affiliations with communism. And so you could wiretap Martin Luther King's phone. You could have COINTELPRO you know write nasty grams, suicide you know death threat letters. Uh, because it was a, there was a foreign predicate. So if you simply conflated the domestic with the foreign, then it wasn't really the classical type of deprivation of, of due process. This is just being really aggressive about countering Russian influence. So it's a way of laundering, of, of bringing the Department of Dirty Tricks that's supposed to stay overseas, of bringing it home to do, if you think of it as a thumbing war between two sort of political factions, it's sort of a sneak attack Uh, by bringing in powers that aren't supposed to be there for this game. They did that in the censorship industry through the use of the creation of a Russian boogeyman that was said to have hacked the 2016 election, that was said to have interfered on US social media, that was said to have created these sophisticated bot farms and troll farms and Facebook pages and this enormous network tapestry that magically disappeared right before the 2020 election. Uh, But somehow in 2016, it was said to be this enormous. Of course, all of it. This forensic, uh, uh, the digital forensics were a total hoax. On it, they were done by the same disinformation experts like Graphica and the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, that ended up becoming massively discredited in subsequent years when they completely made up results. They called real people Russian bots, and those people went on TV, and you know, read their name, rank, and serial number. So it was a hoax from the start, but it was a useful one because it allowed the handoff by the creation of censorship infrastructure on the foreign side that could then be grafted on to the, the domestic side. We've talked about the Department of Homeland Security and how it became this hub within the U.S. federal government for coordinating whole society censorship. At the time, before the Biden administration, in, for the 2020 election, the only thing that existed at the time to partner with EIP, to outsource all this censorship, to coordinate the domestic censorship of the US election in 2020 was done technically out of a group within CISA, with uh, DHS called the countering foreign influence task force countering foreign influence task force was was technically the coordinating wing for censorship of the of of you of people in Ohio talking about how it was a little weird that early voting drop boxes were open for 6 weeks before an election you can imagine what you know, what might go wrong with that? In the very first week Biden took office, this is in January, 2021, before the, the calendar even hit the word February, one of the first courses of action that Biden's DHS did is they renamed the countering foreign influence task force for to it just the same, the same personnel, the same staffers, but simply went from countering foreign influence to MDM, misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation as a general catch-all with no distinction between foreign and domestic, that way you could paper over the fact that they weren't supposed to
3: be operating on domestic soil. As you're describing all this, right, um, to readers of the Epoch Times and viewers of this program, you know, you just keep thinking, Russiagate, 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 right? Underpinning Russiagate was this idea that there was this, you know, Russians had hacked the election. In fact, there's still Americans that believe that Russians hacked the 2016. and then there was the whole, you know, sort of weaponization of the FISC, and the FISA warrants and so forth, right? Which is again, something you're kind of alluding to um, in what you're speaking about. I don't think anyone imagined, and this is perhaps, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, Matt Taibbi's, you know, realizations in the, in the last few weeks. No one imagined that the whole system could be somehow engaged in all of this at the same time. I mean, does, this, does this make sense? It's still, it still strains credulity that you know everyone, all these different institutions are working in lockstep. Unfortunately, real people with real names at real meetings
2: um, were very cognizant of this, and in fact, um, when, it's my my belief, um, based on compelling evidence that, that, that I think I've assembled. Um, that, uh that this is actually very conscious from from the very start um, take for example in early 2017 when you had the foreign policy establishment trying to reconcile with the fact that a essentially uniparty apparatus that had existed from truman until trump on foreign policy you know this sort of shared left-hand right hand uh, understanding that um, that there would not be any sort of partisan disagreement on foreign policy grounds. We may disagree on, you know, whether it should be high taxes or low taxes. We may disagree on something, you know, like, uh, you know, pro life or pro choice or you know, civil rights versus, you know, various. But but when it comes to what are we going to do about Venezuela? What are we going to do about, you know, Southeast, you know, Asia? What we do that? that there's not going to be at least any sort of intense existential um right left sort of distinction because that's what keeps Washington unified part of that is the, the commercial interest around that but when when populism emerged and became powered by social media it threatened uh, you know the very bedrock of those institutions because now you know domestic manufacturing concerns may actually you know in, in, impede the political will for multilateral institutions that uh, that formed the you know, the basis of, of the consensus architecture what happened was wh- when they were negotiating the response to the threat of social media in the very 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 beginning they were talking and when I say they I'll give an example ambassador Daniel freed is one example of this now I don't I don't know ambassador Freed. I assume he's uh, a, a, a very nice person in, in his personal life uh, uh, he has a certain grace uh, you know uh, with with which he he, he conducts diplomacy, but um, but he was part of an architecture of, of the censorship industry's development in, on this RussiaGate issue in a way that I find to be profoundly disturbing. Um, Ambassador Freed was a forty-year diplomat at the U.S. State Department. He's on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy, and in February two thousand seventeen, he left the State Department uh, in order to take his talents for coordinating government responses to sanctions. He was the sanctions coordinator for the Obama administration after the annexation of Crimea in 2014 after the Crimea referendum. He did the roadshow show in Europe to get all the different NATO countries to pass what were for themselves painful sanctions on Russia uh, over the Crimea annexation. A lot of European countries didn't want to do these sanctions because of the economic impact it would have on their own populations. But Ambassador Freed took his State Department and network clout to put pressure on Europe to, to do sanctions uh, on on Russia for, for purposes of this Crimea response. He then turned around after the 2016 election and took those same connections, those same power networks, and organized all these disinformation conferences, these whole-of-society meetings and mobilizations, and did the same thing that he did on sanctions coordination, he did on censorship coordination, and he was a part of this network that helped pressure and contort the European regulatory climate to passing new censorship laws. Like for example, Germany's NetzDG in August 2017 was this comprehensive. You know, Germany is the industrial powerhouse of Europe, um, and when when they passed NETS-DG, it compelled Facebook to uh, and 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 YouTube. Uh, to adopt artificial intelligence censorship techniques in order to comply with 54 million dollar fines for leaving various kinds of content on their on their platforms that violated this new German law and so now so once Facebook and YouTube had to adopt all this new AI that had a that had an immediate impact on that AI being redirected inward at, at, uh, in, uh, in the u.s context and in the UK context to counteract Brexit support. Now, Ambassador Fried was talking openly about this at his own disinformation conferences with European regulators, with, with national security officials, with extremely important and influential people who at the time were saying, Ambassador Fried, you know, that sounds like a great idea, but it's just not enough. You know, the Russians are only one component of this. These populists, they've taken on a life of their own. Yeah, they seem to have their own independent interests. And Ambassador Freed is, is in the room telling them, "Listen, I understand. I understand. But in America, we can't just go from zero to one. We have to boil the fraud. I mean, as an old, you know, as an old diplomat, the, the thing to do is to set up an informal mechanism, maybe formal, but start informal between the U.S., the EU, key shareholders, and bringing in the the civil society, and then use that to have a conversation with the social media companies. We've got a lot of leverage, we can use it. And they will adjust, their, their culture is malleable. They will respond to the incentive structure that we set up if we do our job. If you do your thing in Europe, it will help the transatlantic alliance merge towards a common set of norms and values with respect to social media speech. And the, in, the, the creation of this counterintelligence infrastructure will naturally gravitate Uh, uh, As the Mueller investigation is ongoing, as pro-Trump groups are seen more and more as an arm of Russians themselves, there will be an easier time simply consolidating those two concepts into one. Trump, Russia. If you simply create a censorship infrastructure for Russia, as Trump gets merged into Trump-Russia, the two become one and the same. And then suddenly no one's crying tears if if an accused a suspected Russian propagandist who happens to be some 17-year-old high school kid in Wisconsin who has an opinion about the border wall, Um, when they get taken down as part of a 10,000-person roundup of suspected Russians, no one's going to cry tears because at least you're aggressively dealing with a national security threat. So they were aware of this. I mean, this is February 2017. This is right at the outset. So we should be far past the point and splutter stage at this point. Coming up next on American Thought Leaders. What you are doing in a regime change operation is you are operationalizing huge masses of domestic population. And in order to do that, you need to control the media infrastructure. You need to
3: control the narratives that people believe. What was new is that in 2016, this began coming home. In part two of my interview with Mike Benz, we discuss how tools originally developed to promote regime change were deployed against Americans. NATO declared a new doctrine called From Tanks to Tweets, to tweets. And there became that whole new military doctrine called hybrid warfare. From quote digital resilience to media literacy, to moderation, and intervention, a whole new lexicon emerged to describe the new censorship regime. Whoever can control the Department of Dirty Tricks is able to
1: use it to remove all opposition. This is America Thought Leaders, and I'm Yang. Okay, so that was the whole thing in entire. I'm go ahead and invite some more people. I see that there's a couple listeners with us. We've got William, Ice, Ice, and one plus one others, remoting in from somewhere in the world. Um, thank you for joining the unsanctioned citizen. That was kind of a long lecture. Listening to Mike Benz from the um, Freedom Foundation. He does some sort of Freedom Foundation. <laughs> um, let me just pull it up here. Uh, so I'm going to invite William on. He usually has a lot to say. He's already populated. Good Lord! Such a busy man. Okay, Stephen, or not Steve, William, can you jump up here and talk about some of the things that you were discussing in the chat? We have a third world war must be fomented between Christians and Islamic world, Iran claims drones attack, Iran, Iran, Iran. Trump has honorary third degree Scottish Freemason, don't know about that. See here, Jimmy Dore redacted, Kim Iverson, Don Campbell. Top Thai officials are pulling off their gloves against Pfizer-BioNTech, sounds like you got a lot to say so um i'm gonna let you take it over for just a minute just can you give us a a short short pill version of of what you wanted to say
4: yeah well um uh, there's breaking news on the thai princess in a coma that she's not expected to recover after booster shortly after booster and um uh, there's a Dr. Uh, Bhakti who's in the video redacted. Um, Clayton and Natalie Morris is asking us to spread this around. Um, so I know, you know, it's off topic for you today, but I do know that's an in interest of yours. So I wanted to get that in. Um, regarding the uh, three world wars predicted by Albert Pike, 33-degree Freemason, Confederate General, um... And then we see what's going on between Iraq and Israel, and that's kind of what he predicted. If you read uh, some of the links on him, um, uh, now Trump. Some people allude, allude to the fact that Trump was very upset when that statue was pulled down, Albert Pike statue, and uh, painted, and um, he insisted of being reerected. That there may be some ties um, with. Uh, Freemasonry and Albert Pike, Donald Trump. But then again, you got to look back at all the U.S. presidents, and many of them been known to be Freemasons. That's not a secret, you know. Um, I don't know what's really running the show here. You know, there's a lot of people who believe that it's uh, secret societies over – Many generations and bloodlines to kind
1: of challenge that notion. And, And what we're really discussing here is a cult that has that has a belief that they are entitled to run things because they are a cult. And there is another you know, there are many people who have this belief, but it's not legitimized by any legal construct that's out there. There's also a a splinter group of people that think that the post office are the actual government of the United States. So I've heard a lot of different things, but as far as I can see is that the Freemasons are constituencies of the, the federal government. Maybe they have a strong power structure. They have a strong belief in monuments. Okay. And they're, they're monument people and, and, you know, they, they build a statue, and that's their sacred object. You know, they, they, they draw sacred, you know, tetragrammatrons in the ground and, and believe in aliens, and, you know, that that's their thing. That's that's their whole thing. But I don't believe what they believe, and other people have different religions, and that's fine, uh, but I don't think that Freemasons are necessarily entitled to... And, and I don't think it's even confirmed that, that Donald Trump is or is not a freemason the guy well, is the corporate guy
4: there's a lot of i'm looking up now many u.s presidents were honorary 33 degree freemasons that's not hidden that's that, that don't forget they have <laughs> they have they have their main building in washington um and i think Sheila i'm gonna disagree with you here and we're entitled obviously to have different opinions, you know. Um, our government is not run by the politicians, that's for sure. Um, and I am of the mind of uh, believing in bloodlines and royalty from the British royal family to, um, and the influence of the Western European bankers on the way governments are run and what decisions are made, receiving I, I, I have a totally different view on this. I don't believe our politics have any real merit. If you look at the Princeton um, Northwestern study, Professor Gillins and Page, 20-year study, our votes don't matter according to their analysis of what's actually passed through Congress. Whether, and so, I, I,
1: I, you know. They are exclusively, they are exclusively patriarchal and they have extreme objections to women running things because of really, really old, like, like old world, old European, like beefs with women who were, you know, and, and the thing is, is that that really dominates their whole argument for a lot of things. Like I don't spend as much time on gender fights as, as they do. I mean, it's like the sun and the moon for them. Like it's, it's like, that something will fall out of alignment if women are, are governing things at all and I'm thinking, okay I just want some qualified government that won't cheat and won't steal from the American people okay, if you can find a woman who will do that as opposed to some you know, Joe Biden nobody's talking about his make Freemason membership He's because he's a kleptocrat you know, I, I really want somebody who's honest or more honest um, you know not to be completely obtuse to, to be involved with my government okay they take taxes from us involuntarily uh, it's something that we actually fought at the beginning at the origins of, of the construct of our nation to not have as many taxes because it's the government taking your stuff and you know I'm, I'm just kind of like okay that's their drama i mean and i'm fine with it okay we have freedom of religion in this country but i'm okay with saying that freemasonry is a religious construct and they have fights over things that i don't give two shits about
4: All right but if you look at i put po- wikipedia i just put a link in wikipedia and since the office of established in 1789 45 persons have served as president of the United States. Of these, 31% are known to have been Freemasons, and I suggest that it's maybe much higher than that. So what I'm saying is, you know, when we look at these uh, ancient, uh, which goes back to Nimrod, by the way, the Tower of Babylon, the first original of Grand Freemason, yeah, and we I look at... It. I just want to
1: clear the air here that I, I don't believe, like that's not my personal belief. You know, I I don't have a belief or an attachment to to the Freemasonry belief system. I just want to clear the air on that one. You're free to say what you you
4: like. Well, the the fact of the matter is these presidents are listed by Wikipedia as Freemasons. Whether or not you think then their politics... Okay, well, I can go to another source then if it makes you happy. The bottom line is there's no secret that we, that Freemasonry has infiltrated world governments, just like the World Economic Forum has. And to deny that and think that it doesn't affect uh, politics, we'll, we'll just agree to disagree. Do you agree that the World well, I mean, Economic Forum caused one?
1: I don't disagree with you that they are Freemasons and that Freemasons exist. I don't, I don't disagree with you that, that, that maybe these Freemasons have been presidents of the United States of America but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge the, the logic that they're entitled to rule because they are Freemasons or that they are somehow extra special to to run America because Freemasons I don't believe that um, now the fact hey. that they they correlate and, and they you know that sort of thing you know there are Christians, Okay, they, they they were also most of them were were Christian people by by belief system. Um, there were other things that that they were had in common. Um, but you know, I just I just have a a problem with saying okay, because the the impression that I'm getting, and and you're free to correct me, because I don't I don't want to derail the discussion. The discussion really here is about. You know the fascistic appropriation structure that was built around the covid and that it was lined up because we had a domestic president who didn't coordinate with the rule-based international order of things and the people who were highly threatened, the, the the foreign policy set that was galvanized behind Hillary Clinton, the people did not choose her, okay? And I don't think it had anything to do with the fact that she had a vagina. Maybe it was for a lot of people. Maybe it was for a lot of Freemasons. I don't care. She governed terribly. She governed terribly. And, and you know, she killed people out of spite or or, or I don't know. I don't know why she chose to pick on Libya to take out that particular leader. Because it well, brought a whole a, lot of hell into, into the universe and it didn't need to happen.
4: Okay, here's my... Uh, let me give you a little feedback, if you don't mind. First no, of all, no, no, Business no, I, Insider I is... Doing. Business Insider, another source, cites the same thing as Wikipedia. If you want to debunk Wikipedia, fine. Okay. Um, uh, we if Albert Pike... Did state there would be three world wars, and he stated the third one would be Christianity and, and Islam. Um, it's not what I'm saying. Now he was a Confederate general. He was a 33-degree Freemason. Whether or not you think his predictions are just supposition or coincidence is up to you. Um, I see things a little differently regarding why we went into Libya. Um, that was we go overseas. Uh, usually those are banker's wars. Have you ever heard of, of Michael Rivera, all wars are banker's oh, wars? Oh yeah,
1: banker's wars. Yeah, I've heard about that. I know.
4: About yeah, and what we had what we had there was we had Libya, we also had Iraq. Um oh, so you had Qaddafi. Right. And, and what did they want to do? They wanted to break away from the petrodollar, or, which is backing our fiat currency now, right, in Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. and sell their oil through their own different currencies that they were going to get together, kind of like the BRICS nations are talking about now. Right. You follow me? Yeah, it's and, a currency challenge. It's a currency it's challenge. It's... It's a central banker's challenge, uh, the bankers of the Western hegemony. Do you follow me? That's what it is. And so for that reason, that's why, and that and other resources, right, like, you know, uh, minerals, uh, petrochemicals, uh, poppy, you know, pick one. Central America, where fruit growers and banana growers, believe it or not, and coffee, the giant growers. And then, of course, you have the labor pools that we want to tap me being, not me, we being our government, which is run by transnational corporations. Have you ever seen the movie um, uh, N- uh, Network, uh, Mr. Yeah, Beal? I did see it. Mad as hell, and yeah. I'm not going to take it anymore. Did you recall the scene on the corporation where he's walked into the New York, I believe it's he's walked in up the stairs of the New York... Um, if I'm not mistaken, a library, to a conference room. He's being led by um, Duvall, right, who's supposedly his program manager. And they get into a room, in, which is a conference room. This man comes in who's a corporatist, and he identifies himself. And he basically lays it out. I mean, it's very prescient. Like, there are no borders. That basically the transnational corporation is in the exchange of money, is what runs this world, you know. Well, and they I mean, will take that there wherever be- they need to.
1: There, there, I guess there's some credence to some of that. I mean, there, there is a, a commerce structure that operates mm-hmm. in the free market independent of governments. And that actually, whether that comforts you or not, I've acknowledged that for a long time um, that that's important and vital to, to, the, to international trade and to the, the, the ability to get things. Okay, to buy things, to trade things, that sort of thing. Um, hey, I see that Jonathan is with us. I just want you to know that our guest, or not our guest, our guest by uh, uh, the Foundation Cut out, Sheila. for Freedom Online. The Foundation for Freedom Online, and I, I didn't do the, the um, listener's justice by saying so. Um, on Twitter, he was cited at Sea Island, Georgia. So, Jonathan, I don't know if you're still near... Um, st mary's or wherever you were in in georgia on amelia island perhaps uh but sea island he would like to find a way to play chess with somebody as of six hours ago so that's that was mike Benz of the freedom sorry the foundation for freedom online so
4: can i give you a a little feedback (laughs) sure You, you mentioned free markets we have no free markets that's a myth
1: yeah, I think that there's a challenge to that assertion that we want free markets. They are not for necessarily so free. We have a we have kind of a, a fascistic setup right now. And he just spent like at least 46 minutes kind of unpacking what's going on with with online censorship and the fact that our the United States government has sponsored with your tax dollars a ton of grants to produce um, tailored censorship. And they, they, they've parsed it out to the social media companies to, you know, a variety of different NGOs. And uh, they were competing uh, to, to reinforce this rules-based order on, and do it on the basis of a whole of society. So that it was more like a comprehensive, like, think panopticon. And uh, while that's really scary upon first hearing to a lot of people... I mean, I think that people have had an idea of this for years, but it is wholly Ill- illegal, and it's against our constitutional setup. It's against um, it's against our personal rights. It's against the promise of the United States government as as a free society in the world. And um, you know, to object to this strongly using your voice is really important to me. Um, So to to sponsor your own objections and and to approach governing actors and say, you know, let's let's not advocate. Even if I were a third world country, okay, and a citizen in a place where, where my rights were not guaranteed, I would still have terrible objections. I would have objections to a human rights battering against my personal speech, using artificial intelligence to kettle everything I do into a clean room where it's like no 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 you shall not speak now because we are China and that's we don't have a contract with our government that that silences us it was really weird when I came into the room today there was like one I was the only one speaking for at least 15 minutes which is unusual there are only Two or three rooms where that's happened, anytime I bring up like national ID or something really loaded like this particular grant structure, you know, I've had rooms where I've had like 39 people in. But it isn't on topics where I have a lot of backed evidence. So um, so I just wanted to say that, that I'm really happy that you are here, but I have... I have grounded objections that are based in the law Uh, I can approach my my elected leaders which I have and I've I've said you know we cannot use our tax dollars to silence Americans we cannot sponsor grants and give them to people who are vesicles of the world in economic forum and ask them for advice on how to silence us this is perverse
4: yeah, well, we agree on that. I mean, I'm not um, yeah. advocating the system.
1: No, no, obviously. no, no I'm, just I'm
4: saying it. Yeah. And then uh, regarding, uh, we have to recall the Smith-Month Modernization Act of 2012, signed by Obama, uh, repealed the prohibition of domestic propaganda through the State Department and all media forums. And that Smith-Mund Mo- Smith Act of 1948 was repealed. And the so the Modernization Act, um, now our tax dollars go to basically fund all legacy media to propagandize us through State Department uh, uh, directives. And that's so check out the Smith Month Modernization Act of 2012. So it's and now that was um, um, that amended meant uh, was written into the National Defense Authorization Act, where there again you took away your rights of um, due process, habeas corpus, if you were deemed to be some threat on some broad range uh, uh, definition where you could be incarcerated illegally, indefinitely. And Chris Hedges sued uh, the Obama administration, along with that, along with Ralph Nader and some other. How are you doing? You having trouble breathing? It sounds like. Are you okay?
1: I'm taking some chill out drops right now because this stuff is hard to listen to. It really is. It oh, oh, I,
4: to to I, I, I did get the some of your messages that you put out through calling that you're having some allergy respiratory issues. So I was concerned. I thought. Oh, oh, that was last breathing. week. This isn't. This oh. isn't.
1: Uh, this is. This is purely emotional reactions.
4: Oh, oh. Yeah, well, this gets you firing up all right. It is. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, well, Chris Hedges won in the New York District Court originally. No, no, but then the Obama administration appealed it and he lost in the Court of Appeals, uh, Chris Hedges did. So, of course, he took it to the U.S. Supreme Court and the judges decided he didn't have standing. He doesn't have standing, a U.S. citizen who's a reporter. And meanwhile, Julian Assange has been incarcerated, he doesn't have standing. It's a blatant it's threat to any reporter, The the this whole NDAA. Do you follow me? Where, look what they did. I mean, so, but anyway, they don't, no, you don't have standing. That's how they deal with it. Nope, too bad. We won't even hear the case. That's what they decided. And so they deferred back to the appellate decision. So Chris and Nider and all the other people on the suit lost. I don't remember everybody else on the suit. There's a lot to remember upstairs with the cobwebs and marbles, you know what I mean? But, uh, there's so much going on. Plus, I played football a lot of years. I got, you know, maybe uh, some uh, little top protein team floating around up there, two-blocking some synapses, who knows? But anyway, um, so there you have it. Uh, you know, and and, and so... Um, I don't know what else to say, Sheila, other than. Oh yeah, you're, you're, I, you're
1: great. <laughs> you're great, William. You're always welcome here. I just want to reiterate that you're always welcome here. We we appreciate you a lot. Yeah.
4: Well, you cut out again, just like last show. Can you hear us? I don't. Did, can anyone hear Sheila? Last at the end of the last show, you cut out. Same thing. Well, but was it time before last? I don't remember. Last time you and I were speaking. Uh No, don't. don't yeah, no. Uh, how you doing, Ice Ice and uh, Jonathan? This is exactly what happened at the end of the last show. It's weird. I don't know if she has an internet connection or what goes on here. You all right, brother? Well, at least you and I could talk a little bit. Maybe she should come back in. You know, you never know. But um, I know Jonathan and I have talked about the international banksters. Jonathan's being quiet today. Come on Jonathan, help me out here. give me a little backup, will you bro <laughs> I know you're in there out there and we, I know you agree um, on the international monetary policy that uh, rules this world right that at least the Western hegemony and the, and what they're trying to maintain at all costs you know what I mean but I have to question the BRICS, you know what I mean, in the sense that, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South America, supposedly Saudi Arabia was trying to join along with uh, Turkey. So you have two of our allies, one maintaining the petrodollar to keep our fiat currency afloat, right? And so... Uh, CBDC, yeah. Central Bank Digital Currency. But all 193 nations oh, are on I mean, board with that, right, brothers? I mean, You're back! We were winning. what happened? <laughs> like, can you hear us?
1: Yeah, I can hear you. What, yeah, we can hear you. Did I cut out?
4: <gasps> yeah, you cut out!
1: Oh my god, I was talking about the Artificial Intelligence and the NSF grant. The National we didn't science hear science any. Grant. I was talking about the National Science Foundation grant that deployed the ISIS uh, choke, choking uh, you know, they sponsored, the source of this information was the National Science Foundation, the NSF. Can you hear me now?
4: I can. You're loud and clear. Go ahead.
1: Okay. So they had a, an AI that would stop the communications of ISIS people during war in Afghanistan. They had a grant. The NSF had a grant. They handpicked that AI firm, and then they deployed that on Americans. If you had vaccine hesitancy, it would just choke your your comms.
4: No kidding. Holy yeah, shit.
1: That's, okay, so the first reporting source that I found that was Project Veritas, and now this Foundation for Freedom Online.
4: Wow. Wow. So, I know uh, you
1: know, this has been going, I mean, this has been out since the 26th, and wow. I've had the, the, Kim, the Kim.com, you know, he was the one who put out, you know, he amplified it. But, you know, it was Project Veritas and then uh, Reclaim the Net.
4: Sheila, do you know that you cut out the end of last show, too? You were completely cut off and we never heard back from you again? Remember what the hell
1: is going on? I mean, this app, you know, I'm going to complain to David Sachs and and to Charlie Weiser again. Um, Plus, the, the listenership has been relatively suppressed
4: yeah the, I'm have wondering I, I just uh-huh.
1: talked to them about, about you know are you getting spooled by this AI? I mean they have a this Mike Ben's interview unpacked the fact that there's a lot of coercion you know aimed at these social media companies. I'm not saying that this is happening at Colin right but you know but there is a growing coalition of you know freedom from censorship, yeah. You know, social media companies like Rumble, Colin's mm-hmm. supposed to be one of them. Twitter is now among them. Um, yeah. you know, I'm not I'm not proud of Elon Musk for choking the, out the the Modi interview, the BBC documentary, but if it's one thing versus like all things, I can't say all or nothing.
3: because well,
1: he's done a lot of great things and we've been able to know a lot of what's happened to American freedom of speech because of what he's done at
4: Twitter well yeah but I'll push back on him on he he blocked Garland Nixon for pointing out a lot of Ukraine issues uh, and you know Garland interviews you know Colonel McGregor and um, he's along that Scott Ritter you mm-hmm. know just get his politics where he's from so he blocked him. I think Scott Ritter got banned from Twitter again, last I heard. I don't know if he's, again, I don't know what's happened since the last couple of days. And then there's the Alex Jones matter on free speech, which, if you ask me, should have been brought to federal court immediately and turned over based, and maybe will be in an appeal process, but... Um,
1: it's a long, he's in the throes of a really long fight. Right. He's in the law he's in a law fair example case right now yes. and so it's important that you just pray for the angels and the powers to, to move his favor you know in, in in the direction of justice like what's supposed to be true um, because more than o- more often than not uh, it will favor uh, you know fair use. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, fair practice versus unfair practice now when you subscribe to an online service you're going in as a consumer to a not a public thing but a private thing okay if, if NPR had a social media company you would know coming in the gate Oh well you're gonna do business information business with the government because that is a government enterprise it's a nonprofit uh, entity working directly as a result of your tax dollars it is a tax funded enterprise okay and that is a public-private entity you know what you're doing when you go in the door but when you come in the door it's say like Colin or Facebook or Twitter or any of the other online uh, social media entities you're coming at the door as somebody believing that this is a corporate product what is happening is that there's a set of rules for you aimed at you as a third party okay and the government is being treated as a third party vendor with access to your information and they are being given Um, inappropriate access to you, to your accounts, and to your speech as a third-party vendor. And this happened without any of your consent, and in addition to that, it's important to tell you that your rights under the Privacy Act of 1974, whether they want to acknowledge it, whether they'll batter you and say no 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 here's you know 14 illegitimate reasons why and I have the rights and you don't I have the power and you don't this is the devil they're lying okay you just tell them you know the Privacy Act of 1974 and you invoke it and you tell them you cannot use any corporate communications for the benefit of the government and so I have put those those signatures on you know my digital communications during the, the height of the outing of the Prism scandal and I'm gonna put them back up there because we never stopped doing business with the government apparently you know the State Department and their vesicles are are uh, running hard at us to 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 cork things that the you know World Health Organization does or does not want us to say about the COVID 19 vaccine or, or treatments Uh, and the National Science Foundation, another nonprofit NGO who was, you know, counter-coordinating with social media and, you know, the DNI and and CIA and all these other players who really don't have any say-so in American speech. Let's just put it out there. The FBI doesn't have any say-so whatsoever. It's not a law enforcement matter. American speech is not a law enforcement matter ever okay so they don't, they have, don't any- have
4: any reach well I, should, I, no. I agree with you what i'm saying is if you look at who went to uh, davos 2023 we had uh, had the FBI. one of the um, i don't quote me exactly but i heard her someone covering the people there and one was fbi uh it oh, may have been the director Ray. It was yeah Ray. yeah so, what's supposed to be and what is is like you know Santa Claus versus you know what really happens. You know, I mean, you know what I mean, Sheila. It's like well, we hear so fairy tales. You know,
1: legitimate force. and yes. a lot of this is illegal. If you don't ever Absolutely. call it out as illegal, then it won't ever stop. So you have wow. to, you have to call it what it is. It's illegal and colluding with NGO forces that you know don't represent your interests. You know, you have to choke that. Unfortunately, you do, you have to do it. Okay, as an American citizen, if you don't want the F- World Economic Forum calling the shots and doing an end around and, and then coordinating with the FBI over you and the DHS over you, you have to speak up and say, excuse me, they don't represent, they are not my government. Because the World Economic Forum and the WHO and these other ones will just say, you know what? China's got it all figured out China's got the way the truth and the light China said social credit system China said totalitarian uh, AI world dominance And the web is like you know what they're not a threat This is the way to go. This is the way of the future And so we can't have that
4: Right and when you have um the international health regulations uh, amendments being put, uh, 10 of them being put forth, um, through the World Health Organization. That's another huge challenge that has to be stopped somehow. This is all coordinated. It's a coordinated, uh, assault on our rights of sovereignty of, a na- as a nation and our bodies. Um, and clearly, Organized by people. If you look at who belongs to the WEF, I mean, the 1,200 young global leaders and some, I don't know, last I saw 4,500 global influencers and 1,000 transnational corporations. I mean. That's
1: important, William. I I released a note on this week on my Substack, sheelamdean.com or com. It's Mm -hmm. liberty in many directions. But I I released it this week and it was basically a, a, a spreadsheet of Mark Andreessen and the social media board directors were primarily WEF.
3: Yeah.
2: Okay,
1: there's a large influential <coughs> chunk of of the C-level staff that were World Economic Forum mm-hmm. on Facebook and on Twitter. And I think that Elon Musk got rid of the board 100% because he owns it outright. He said bye-bye board. I don't need it. You know, we're not a non-profit company doing business with the government exclusively. Don't need you, bye bye. I own this outright. And um, and now he is the board, and he'll he'll appoint a new board, but it can't be people at the World Economic Forum. It's not what he wants, and he made a public statement that he wants to kind of like part the the ocean on that one. He doesn't. Right. He doesn't think that they should be the government, and they're acting as proxies. Clearly, they're acting as proxies and and trying to lay over, kind of scaffold over, legitimate government. Oh,
4: Democratic. absolutely. Well, don't you remember, should we do our imitations again, our German accents? You know, <laughs> that, uh, of, uh, uh, Klaus Schwab is uh, very proud of uh, Putin and his young global leaders, including Macron and Trudeau and uh, Penetrating the <laughs> world governments around the world. Yeah, take that penetration and stick it back up your ass, squab. We don't want to hear. <laughs> right? I mean, aye, aye. yeah, Dr. Evil and his handy psychic, you've all known, Harari. Couldn't pick uh, two more evil-looking cast members, you know what I mean, right out of the movies. Um, but, uh, yeah, and that's their agenda. And they're coordinated. These, these are coordinated attacks through these... Um, think tanks and uh, whether, I mean, they, they're they all working together, the Council of Foreign Relations, International Monetary Fund, because if you look at who these people are, they're spread all over the world in all these think tanks and all these quasi-governmental uh, bodies. Do you follow me? Mm-hmm. You know, and if it's not them, it's one of their associates. You know what I mean? I mean, this is very incestuous, sort of, uh... I don't know about you, but pushes my buttons big time. I mean, it's, 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 it's like a net of, of, uh, governance that was not elected, you know, and, uh, you're right about this. Um, how do we push back? Well, you know, Children Health Defense Fund, uh, Bobby Kennedy's organization is, you know, fights back with lawsuits and you can, uh, I think, I don't know if you can, join as a plaintiff in a class action to him there's dr david martin and he has his own site he's got a lawsuit going in utah where he's uh, representing his group is representing a doctor who lost his hospital privileges i think dr peter mccullough just he had a lawsuit he was fighting somebody told me he he came out on top on that uh but i'm not sure how that the details I'll have to look into that, and um, so anyway, um, and what other what other organizations are working for our liberty? You know what I mean? And uh, and the well, first thing is exposing it for what it is. Yeah, you know it's a what I mean.
1: Rules based international mm. order, it, It's right. the structure, and it's the yeah. one that was kind of waiting in the wings mm-hmm. for another national emergency to, to flip things in their direction. Right. And they were extremely, um, they were extremely pushed out when Donald Trump got into office. Whatever it is that he represented to them, he was a, he was an uninitiated, uncult indoctrinated man, uh, to, to the, to the order of things. And he did not want NATO to be, um... A subterranean ruler of the United States of America and I think that that now by this misbehavior there's definitely credence to to what he was has been the, the tenets of which he was governing by let's put it that way uh, I know that is always gonna be heresy but I don't care about offending them because they don't care about me we're already in conflict anyway what difference does it make you know <laughs> do you know what I'm saying you know, like, everything's ruined. What difference does it make if I offend them? They're already offended. So if I say, you know, Donald Trump had it right on, on these things, and NATO isn't as important as, as they need it to be, because NATO isn't NATO. It's not just what it's for. It's like when they, they took the driver's license and they expanded what it was used for so that you could, you know, you needed to buy a video game. You know they'll scan your your identity credential in order to purchase a video game and that's no that's no good that's not what our identity articles are for that's an expansion of use of things and NATO is an expansionist organization apparently because the role of what it's to do is to protect the borders uh, against the threat of Russia if Russia is really not a threat then NATO is irrelevant but they manufactured a new threat coming from Russia. They made it seem like it's 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 current. And, you know, as somebody who's come up here and said the her- heretical thing that I don't care about Russia. I don't give two poofs about Russia. Russia can go do whatever it is that Russia does. But they're fighting Ukraine, who is not a NATO member, by the way. And... You know I really don't have a stake in the game you know unless they are making active uh, threats towards the the whole of Europe or Europe um, then there was an issue now in February of last year Putin did something crazy that would have activated all of those circuits to make it you know make our lives all miserable and 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 make this positively awful he weaponized the ISS and decided to treat it like kind of like a, a crude uh, blunt force object he threatened to throw the ISS down from heaven on onto the whole of Europe and screw you all and because he did that um, mr. Elon Musk decided to, to work on his sat-link, uh to kind of scramble the communications and, and, you know, web links so that that wouldn't happen. You know, it was really a frightening time uh, for a lot of people, but they didn't. That's why they greenlit, uh, I don't know, several like billions of dollars, like immediately. They just spent it and then said, we'll send the bill to Congress later. Because, you know, that's what Putin had planned. So. Should Putin be running Russia? Probably not. Are we the ones to take him out? No, because that's not that's not our role. That's the role of the Russian people, and if they want to put up with tyrants, they will. But it's really up to Russia to um, restore the classification of their government as a democracy instead of an oligarchy. That's their issue. That's their problem. Um, the problem of the Ukrainian war. I'm going to also say something equally heretical here. I don't have a stake as an American citizen in Ukraine. Period. Now, Joe Biden has a stake because of Burisma as a kleptocrat. Um, but I don't. You know, but doesn't mean that they're not using our stockpile, our oil, and, and wasting the hell out of our resources as a parasite. The American government has become a par- parasitic entity that doesn't know how to stop spending so the only hope we the only best hope we have are key legislators in the Congress who can check the executive branch who's just writing checks Woo! spend like like they don't know how to stop spending they just don't know how to do it and I know that Democrats also have this concern, but they are equally told to go pound sand because the Democrats want to spend the money. So it doesn't make you a conservative to say, listen, we you, this is the tax people's money. We're in a hell of a lot of debt. You're going to screw us entire if you do not stop spending, period.
4: Well, I, I think I like to give you some feedback, um, if you have the time. I don't know where you're at in your, you know, your time limit, but, um, I think if we look at NATO, you know, when the Warsaw Pact bro- broke up, um, you had a lot of talk about, uh, an agreement that was allegedly forged between, um, Ronald Reagan and, um, um, why am I having a senior moment here? Gorbachev that NATO would not expand one in, in each, the east of, uh, Germany. And, um, and then, of course, we've seen an expansion of 14 nation states and some others that, you know, attempting to bring under the fold. And, uh, during that time, uh, you had William Burns, who was, um, ambassador to Russia for the United States uh, speaking out about this uh, along with even Joe Biden Senator Joe Biden about this was going to would push uh, potential conflict uh, with Russia um, so I think if you go back and examine that history and what's available you know uh, uh, online uh, you'll see that I'm speaking the truth now William Barnes burns head of the CIA and uh, now, but uh, we also had the, um, you know, Maidan coup and uh, uh, Victoria Newlands, uh, what she had to say about um, the matter, the leaked uh, phone calls, if you recall, about, well, you know, basically F the European Union. We're going to put in who we want to and as a proxy uh, government there. Um, I'm not making that up. Uh I believe it was Victoria Nuland, if I'm not mistaken. And then you had the Minsk Accords, where, um, it's come out since that, uh, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, and Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine, saying they never had any intention of abiding by the Minsk Accords regarding the Donbass agreement with Russia and the and the people of the Donbass, um, um, to, not make that a separate country, but to at least honor their rights as Russians and allow them to speak the Russian language and not be uh, bombed and attacked uh, by uh, uh, the right sector C 14 Bandera factions uh, that are well known to exist and were so reported on William,
1: you know, has nothing to do with national interest of the United States people. None of it. None of it.
4: I, well, it's what's got us into what we, what our government. I agree, does not have our interest in mind. I'm just citing the course of events uh, that uh, led to this conflict, which could, which if the Minsk Accords, Minsk one and two, were abided to and by. But um, as I said, Angela Marco and Poroshenko's came out and said since that it, they were just buying time to build up their NATO-trained army. NATO trained and uh, munitions stockpile to take on Russia. So this, this is uh, we have a U.S. proxy war going in Ukraine.
1: Okay, let me just go like ahead. Michael Tracy here. He just tweeted. Well, he tweeted this seven hours ago. He didn't just tweet it. But according to the UN, Ukraine's economy con- contracted over by over thirty five percent in twenty twenty two. So close to forty percent of the economy was contracted from other other outside sources. U.S. being one of them, which would mean uh, it now has a GDP lower than the, than Mississippi, which is pretty bad. Uh, at this point, it seems that Western aid isn't so much aid as it is life support. Um, and I'll just say it: during a hot war, you cannot produce any commerce. It, it is an, an impoverishing thing to be in an active hot war, because what are you going to do? Bake a ton of cakes while your bakery is being blown up? No, you can't. you got to steer clear of bombs and go hide in a tunnel. So you can't be as economically productive in such environments. Um, so war is is manufactures poverty. The, the only people who actually make money in wartime are the people who make the bombs. So, um, you know, and the tanks and the people who, who sell the tanks. And so next week, we're going to probably get the drop from Mike Ben's interview with American Thought Leaders on the Tweets to Tanks. And so I'll, I'll be kind of hanging on for that one. Um, but we've been here an hour and 45 minutes, guys. I'm just going to wrap it up. Uh, William, do you have anything last, last to say before we get out of here? Any promo? Uh,
4: did you hear me? Yeah. There's a big anti war rally that's coming up I maybe this weekend in Washington. I'm not sure. Oh, oh. I caught wind of it. Uh Jimmy Dore, uh Judge Napolitano, Scott Ritter, uh Sabi Savs talked about a lot of people it's been kinda of circulating around. I gotta look more into it. I don't have more information on that, but just Did a tip to, to explore it. No, no, no! It's something I need to research and bring it up so the listeners can research it. Because okay. I, I just caught wind of it and I haven't taken the time to dive into that yet. But um, it's a big anti-war rally, so um, hopefully, you know, uh, that we the American voices are heard. And uh, you know, don't forget also BlackRock and Vanguard—they committed to rebuilding Ukraine. Apparently, uh, that was that came out in the press uh, within the last couple of days. Um, and you're right. It's the military-industrial congressional complex that profiteers and the and the central banksters—I call them banksters—you know what I mean—that profiteer during wartime. And so, there's never benefits to people in the long run. Do you follow me? It's always a not, not only a drain on the resources and a, a, a Pentagon budget that they haven't balanced in how many years? I mean, how does that go on? Not only that, then there's some lives. Of the young men you know what i mean um and uh, those who come back who do survive with severe ptsd the super high suicide rate um like 22 veterans a day yeah i mean it costs
1: lives and in, and in extended lives you know people who have right. of, like slow deaths walking walking death um i just want to read some breaking news from anti sure. these are just three headlines before we get out of here uh americans opposition to ukraine aid is a headline uh, Blinken cancels China meat over the balloon Okay, and then the Federal Reserve strangles Iraq's economy So this is not over This is not over And we need to extract ourselves at some point So this is why we go to Washington, D.C. to protest So with that, my lovelies, I'm going to take off I want you to have an excellent weekend And I'll be back next Saturday with more of the same but Different but the same, yeah Okay, we'll see you then
0: Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Podomatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch.